When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books Network. I'm Rachel Pagonis, and I'm your host for this episode. Today, I'm speaking with Char Miller about his new book, Natural Consequences, published by Reverberations Books in 2022. Char Miller is the W.M. Keck Professor of Environmental Analysis and History at Pomona College in Claremont, California. He's the author or editor of more than 40 books, including West Side Rising, How San Antonio's 1921 Flood Devastated a City and Sparked a Latino Environmental Justice Movement, and Not-So-Golden State, Sustainability versus the California Dream. In addition to his academic work, he's active in the leadership programs for the U.S. Forest Service and in building public awareness of environmental and climate change issues. Additionally, he has served as a contributing writer for the Texas Observer, as Associate Editor of Environmental History and the Journal of Forestry, and he is a Senior Fellow at the Pinchot Institute for Conservation, as well as the Forest History Society. Char, welcome to the show. Well, thank you so much, Rachel. It's great to be here. Well, and it is great to have you talking about one of my favorite states and favorite places on Earth. So to begin, would you tell us a bit about your own background and what led you to write Natural Consequences? Oh, well, that's a fun question. Um, you know, I it, it's hard to think about one's own biography um, in, in many respects, but I think in some ways that is central to this project. And actually, um, one of the other books you mentioned, uh, Not So Golden State and some others, where I've been trying to think about my work as an historian in different ways than I would if I were to write for a professional journal. That is to try to, try to think about I don't know, I won't say better, but different ways of reaching different audiences. Um, And I have to credit my mother in part for um, helping me see this in two respects. My favorite photograph of me as a child in Palo Alto, uh, where we lived for a short time, was um, my toddler Ness uh, leaning up against a couch where my mother was sitting on that my mother was sitting on and she's got a book in her lap and a ball in her hand and the only way she could figure out how to keep me occupied so that she could read um, was to throw the ball down the hall and I would toddle after it and in that interspace she would get to read a page or two well that that taught me something about reading to be sure and also I Never quite got my kids to do the same thing. Um, But also about the joy of words. I mean, obviously, this is retrospective, and I thought about, uh, have thought about that consistently. Um, But she also said to me much later, my first publication as an historian, she said, Well, who's going to read this? 
you know, five people, maybe 10 if I'm lucky. And she said, well, why are you writing that way? And so, you know, there's a there's some sort of dynamic there that I've found really interesting in terms of forcing myself to think in different ways, which also forces me to write in different ways. Um, and so, you know, I grew up in New England and um, absolutely adored and still adore that landscape. Um, but but when I moved out here as a 19 year old, I was transferring to Pitzer College in Claremont. Um, I entered a space in Southern California that just blew my mind. Um, and, you know, that's probably true for lots of people who arrived to California, but, but, but my story, again, my mother figures largely in this. Uh, I went to swim in Laguna Beach in February of 1973, got out of the ocean, called up my mother and said, what, why did we move? What, what, what led you to take us out of this incredible place where I could go swimming in February? Froze, but swimming. Um, and so I, what I loved about the place was not just its extraordinary um, beauty from coast to mountain, um, but, but also the sort of political ferment in the 1970s was dynamic and, and shaped me in lots of different ways. And, you know, that led to a career as an historian, as a teacher, um, but also good fortune gave me the capacity to write um, and people who wanted to read it. Um, and this book, Natural Consequences, uh, which Reverberations, an imprint of Chin Music uh, Press brought out last in, in September of 2022, um, is a reflection of a lot of those converging biographical memoir-like um, urges set within a place largely California, but not exclusively, um, that that's by design written in ways that I don't necessarily write as a professional historian. Although I have to say my professional articles are starting to read like the stuff I write in Natural Consequences um, because I love the capacity to put words on a page that might excite a reader um, to think about their place wherever they are. I'm going to remember that phrase, biographical memoir-like urges. That's a good one. Yeah, so it, just what you said there about you hope it will stimulate readers to think about where they are. I remember when I was a student in the Environmental Studies Department at UC Santa Cruz, um, we were given a quiz thing, and it, it was called, Where You At?, and it asked all these questions about, did you know where your water came from and where it went to and where your sewage went to and your garbage? And uh, you see, so you got ranked on your answers. And I remember all of us received the ranking, you've got your head up your ass. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I got to steal that. That's too good. <laughs> yeah. So. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that's, that is part of it. Actually, I'm doing a, not quite so scatological uh, an approach uh, this spring when I teach a class on water in the West. But the first day is, where's your water? Um, and because Pomona draws students from all over the world, um, I don't know who my students, I mean, I know who they are. I just don't know what their experiences and places are. But their first assignment is wherever they come from is to figure out how the water gets into their tap. Um, just as a way, an experiment sort of to think about both natural and human systems. Great. So 
I want to ask you a question about the structure of the book. Natural Consequences is written as 42 short essays, and they're grouped into categories dealing with broader topics like water usage or fire. But I'm curious what made you decide to structure it this way rather than as, for instance, long chapters on each topic. Yeah, that's great. Um, Well, I... uh... One of my former students in San Antonio came to a book talk I gave about natural consequences uh, several months ago, um, and she she confessed she loved the short chapters because in a digital age, we've gotten very used to uh, sort of quick pops, um, and I'd like to take credit for saying that's why I did it, uh, to please a former student or anyone. Um, but I'm also convinced that short essays, as I tell my students, which is what I have them write, short essays are a lot harder to write than long ones because no word can be wasted, or theoretically that sh- should be what happens, that it forces you to be concise uh, and to say what it is you need to say in you know, a, um, a shorter framework than, say, a 10,000, 20,000 word essay. I love writing long form, um, but I've gotten really excited about short form essays that are 1,000 words, maybe more than that, maybe a little less, because of the challenges that they pose on the one hand for the writer and the access and entryway it gives to the reader. Um, and I, you know, whether it succeeds or not is up to people as they read their way through these texts. But it also means they, they don't have to read cover to cover. They can jump in and out in some respects. So part of this was um, an experiment, although I've done a number of these books uh, prior to this point. Um, part of it is thinking about the work that I've written for the LA Times and other venues that start, in my head at least, to fall into these various categories like water, fire. Um, There's a section on fracking. There's a section on public lands and the consequences of that. There's a section on recreation. Um, So the big topics become ways by which to bundle together stories that are, in my head at least, woven together. and that I think gives the book uh, a coherence that I don't know that it would have if I just sort of tossed things into a table of contents and said, voila. Um, But it's also structured in other ways that are, I hope, apparent in the introduction, and I'll try to make them explicit here. The first was... um, My students and I have been reading this, what for in our program is an iconic essay now, by Charles Sepulveda at the University of Utah, who is a Tongvan Ahachiman um, indigenous scholar um, writing about the Santa Ana River, which is one of the two uh, watersheds that the small town of Claremont, California, um, is at the breakpoint of. So some of its water sloughs west into the San Gabriel River, some of it uh, breaks east to go into the Santa Ana. Um, and as part of his exploration about decolonization um, of this region, he used the word kuyam, which is a Tongvan term for guest, about how those of us who are settler colonials in this region could be, could think of themselves in this space as they, as they work hard to better integrate themselves in the land itself. And so I took the concept of guest as a way to think about me and my readers, or at least those who are non-Indigenous readers, um, thinking about ourselves as guests. And what does a guest do? 
how does a guest behave? It's not just good or bad guests. It's the nuances in between and what, what would make us better guests, not good guests necessarily, but certainly better guests. Um, and so that was one framing. The other set of framings is ecological. I'm not an ecologist, um, but I love the fact that ecologists think in site-based ways. That, that place matters to them because uh, a valley floor and uh, a, a foothill and a mountaintop or a coastal realm are different spaces. And you have to think differently because the, the earth is speaking to you in a different way as you do that work. Um, I am, as I've said, a historian. And so we think about change over time as being our conceit. Like a space is a space, but it also has a history, a geology and a history that has shifted in time. Um, and I love sort of tracking the way in which history of a, of a landscape, of a situation can help us better understand where we are standing at that moment. Um, and the final thing is I love to walk. Um, and, you know, it's pouring rain today, but by God, I went out and I got four miles in, which is not my normal. I usually do a lot more than that in the morning. But, but you know, I like slopping in water. I like walking in heat. Um, and the part that's consistent with this kind of book is that I like writing about walking. And walks are not Unend they're not 10,000 words, right? Well, they could be, I suppose. Thoreau did that. Um, but, but they're shorter. And, and so there may be ways in which this walking writing practice um, has also begat, begot um, a set of essays that some, not all, but some of them are really framed about putting t heel to toe and whether I'm walking up into the mountains or on a beach or as often happens in a suburban street, there are stories there that I'm really intrigued by. And so there's categories and there's stories and then there's sort of these underlying structures or, or ways of thinking that I think have set up natural consequences um, as as an experiment in writing. Yeah, and I think that is true that the, the, the structure of it with the 42 short essays very much gives a sense of place, uh, mm -hmm. individual place and the ecology of that place. Yeah. Good, um, great. I'm glad yeah. you saw that. Fabulous. Yeah. <laughs> well, when I started thinking about it as, as you were talking about, I thought, yes, that's that's what it was like when you, you sit in one place and you just contemplate it for a while and everything yeah. that's going uh, on. No, there. That's exactly right. Yeah. So uh, the book does detail a lot of potential for envi environmental disasters, mm -hmm. but it also strikes me as a love letter to California. Yeah. So, Char, what makes California so special? And <laughs> what makes it a case study? Yeah. I, I'll, I'll just add this bit at, at the end. Yeah, go, go, go. What makes it a case study for how we address environmental Oh, issues? well. Multiple questions. Yeah, um, I'm layer, layering them on you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, but that's start great. with what makes it so special. Um, I think that its potential has always been pretty special, and at least as a trope, that's always how it's been talked about. I mean, the joke I love about California is that it's 90% paradox, uh, excuse me, it's 90% paradise and 10% apocalypse. I think the percentages are shifting as the place burns, floods, slides, and shakes. Um, but, but there's something about that beguiling sort of like it could burn up 
But man, is it gorgeous when it does, uh, that it could slide. But look at what we get when, as a consequence of these natural systems, is a, is a pretty unusual landscape. In Southern California, the mountains are transverse. They go, um, uh, they, they run east-west. They, they don't run north-south. And that took me a while to figure out when I was a student here. And I'm looking at the mountains going, those are north? How does that work? Um, and and you know, so it's it's an unusual landscape in that regard. Um, as the indigenous people of California long knew, it was also rich, uh, both in resources, but but in 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 sort of the the depths of the world that could be created here, um, and still is being created by the indigenous folks from Northern California down to the Kumeya uh, in San Diego County. Um, and so, you know, it's not only white settlers who thought this place was amazing. It was also the indigenous people who are with us still um, who have long thought of it as an extraordinary landscape um, and who perhaps, and I would say no perhaps about it, better lived within the demands and constraints that this world poses. Um, 20 million plus people in Southern California require certain kinds of resources that, that and amounts of resources that indigenous folks did not need in the ways that we perceive ourselves needing. And that has led to very different ways of living. And I'm absolutely fascinated about that process. So it is special, um, but it is also um, a place that historically, at least since colonization has been a place where you could experiment with different ways of legislating and thinking about these environmental problems. But first, you have to think about problems as environmental. Um, no one thought the gold rush was an environmental problem, but we do now. And we do now because of the extraordinarily effective hydraulic mining processes where you streamed water up against um, the land and then sifted out the gold from the soil that spoiled down, but that soil and water flowed into rivers and those, those rivers ultimately led up into the Bay Area, which you cannot dredge because of all of the mercury and other um, toxins that flowed out of the gold rush world and into the Bay that settled there. So, you know, we you look at the Bay Area and you go, God, this is gorgeous. What an extraordinary harbor and all of this. And then you then you learn a little bit about what's underneath that water. Um, and you realize that everything is connected. Those mountains are connected to that bay just by the natural watersheds themselves. But that also means the pollutions that come out from that, uh, the toxins that flowed out in the 1840s are still bedeviling a landscape in the 2020s. Um, that's, that's how the past talks to the future. That's how the past makes its present its presence felt. Um, and that's the kind of stuff that I think makes it both a landscape of disaster. I mean, earthquakes, of course, and fires and floods and the like, um, but also these historic moments where, um, you know, L.A. County is the largest urban oil field in the world, much of which is masked, but it doesn't mask the dilemmas that came from that. Sure, we got cars, and yes, we have gasoline, and that has been the power power resource for much of the 20th and 21st century. Um, but reigning in that process has proved to be really difficult, and California is sometimes successful and sometimes not. And the environmental movement has been 
I mean, a part of California, well, there's a lot of environmental movement history in California. Um, but then, as you say, we also, I mean, we have LA and, and the ports of LA and the oil fields and, um, but it does seem to be California legislatively more on the cutting edge, if there is such a thing, of environmental legislation. Yeah, it does. And I think, I think in part because the, you can always refer back to either a recent past or a more distant one where you can build a history of this process that you can then articulate to a population. And so, I mean, here's one of the ironies. It's not in the book, but it's something I'm really intrigued by. Los Angeles, of course, as everyone knows, um, is a water empire. It pulls water from the Colorado River. It pulls water from uh, Mono Lake uh, in the eastern Sierra. It pulls water from the Owens River Valley in the Sierra. It gets enormous amounts of water from um, the State Water Project. It, it's, it's a hydraulic empire in its own way. But there's also been, at those extents, um, challenges. And so the Mono Lake Committee... Um, which in the 70s and 80s started challenging L.A.'s right to Mono Lake as a source of water and has been doing so for more than 40 years, maybe close to 50 at this point, um, is, an, is, is heavily invested in by those of us who live in Los Angeles who think they're making a really good case. Um, and so, you know, you've got this sort of irony of um, resource extraction that benefits people in this case, Southern California, where Southern Californias are, are supporting people in other areas to help them reclaim a landscape that Los Angeles has drained. Um, and so you've got both things going on simultaneously. Um, there's a fabulous documentary, which again, I don't talk about in the book. It may be something later I do, um, called The Aqueduct Between Us, which is a conversation between the Tongvin people in Southern California, where the LA aqueduct ends with those, with, with the Northern and Southern Paiute who are in Owens River Valley. Um, and the aqueduct is what links them, but what also links them is the indigenous um, land management concepts of how one approaches landscapes. Um, and, and so it's these kinds of things where, where you, you can look at a story and go, oh man, that is terrible. Why did LA do this? Um, and then also look at like who lined up against LA doing this. Um, and, and what does that tell us in terms of it? So nothing is, is, straightforward as it seems. Um, and part of what I've hoped to do in Natural Consequences is sort of open up those moments where things don't quite cohere in some black and white narrative. So let's talk about fire. Um, because raging out of control forest fires have been in the headlines across the West for years recently. Um, what are some of the factors behind those fires and what could be done to mitigate them? Great. So, you know, the wildfires are obviously um, a singular story in one sense. Uh, it is a collision of climactic uh, change 
that's undergoing the southwestern part of the United States from El Paso to Los Angeles and then north from that those two nodes um, have been drying out since the middle part of the 1980s. So we've got about a 40 year run so far. And even though it's pouring rain today in early January 2023, uh, that's almost meaningless relative to the longer run of drought that is anticipated to go in this version of it anyway, up until about 2030 or more. Um, And so one of this is you have drought that is drying out vegetation um, in kind of unhappy ways, both for the trees and those who, of us who love them. Um, you have extraordinary collision of those landscapes, those forests, chaparral or pine or oak, regardless, with the human geography, which is if you take those same two nodes, El Paso to Los Angeles and move north, you're looking at a huge population that has grown enormously uh, since the end of World War II. And, you know, Phoenix had 30-something thousand people, maybe a little more than that before World War II. And now this Valley of the Sun has roughly 4 million plus. Um, Los Angeles had 1 million. It's now L.A. County is the single largest, most dense county in the United States outside of Manhattan uh, with 10 million people living in it. Um, So these are big places that require lots of resources. And also people are bustling up into uh, foothills and into canyons and up onto ridgelines and the like, which used to burn. Um, And so what you have is this social dynamic running up against a climactic dynamic that is generated by that very social dynamic, such that our vehicles that emit various toxins are part of the factoring into climate change globally. So, you know, that's one way to think about these fires. But fires, is, as, as you know, are, are site-specific. They burn where they burn in the ways that they burn because of the place that's on fire. Um, and that almost has nothing to do with ignition. But as a sidebar, I would say most of the largest fires, in fact, almost all of the large fires that have burned through California since 2003 are the result of utility failure. That is to say, Pacific Gas and Electric, uh, Southern Cal Edison, or Pacific Gas and Electric San Diego, their wires collapse, a substation sparks. The very utilities that are required to enable people to live in Foothill Canyon and Firelands are the things that spark the fires. In September, August, September of 2020, five of the six largest fires in California's history were burning simultaneously. All of them had their origins as ignitions anyway in the utilities. So we're doing this to ourselves, not only by our desire to live in places that are fire zones. And we know that from Cal Fire, uh, the state agency, but because City councils, zoning boards, planning commissions, county supervisors, they're all green lighting development in areas which they know are burning. So wildfires are these very complicated structures and affect what we're doing is turning wildland fire or what we talk about as wildland fire and turning them into structure fires because that's what they're burning. 
um, not exclusively, but 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 in in many respects, that's the story we see because that's where the evacuations are. That's where the most um, energetic response is located. Uh, and so, wildfires actually are a way to illuminate the way we have chosen to live in a landscape that was adapted to fire as if we could manage both that landscape and ourselves within places that burn. And the evidence is that we can't. Yeah, wow, that's an interesting way to see it. Um, so let's- but As for mitigation, I've got that one. That oh, yeah. one's very clear. Um, even as you go to protect you know, uh, Mammoth Lakes and, and other ski slash mountain towns, um, you stop building in places that the state has already identified as high severity fire zones. Like what on earth are we thinking of? Um, that's such bad policy. And then you have to pay for it. I mean, collectively, we pay for it through insurance. We pay through it through city taxes to have fire departments that are willing to race uphill while we race downhill. I mean, it's, it's, it's a series of, I th- what I would call missteps and dangerous missteps. And that's got to be one set of responses um, to a wildfire situation in the entire West. Uh, And it's, you know, it's true in Colorado, New Mexico, Arizona, California, Oregon, uh, the Intermountain West. Um, These places all burn and they're starting to burn people and housing. um, And those houses and people probably shouldn't be there. Yeah. And you can see that, you know, people like to live in beautiful remote places. Yeah. Totally understand it. Yeah. But, you know, they may be changing their minds to an extent after some of the fires. Yeah. And, you know, that's that that would be a pressure on development that would be lovely. Um, The state of California has also started to ask very penetrating questions of developments that don't have and that do not include fire danger in their environmental impact statements. Effectively, county supervisors rubber stamping. Uh, the development without asking rather tough questions like, if this area burned and it has before, how are they going to get out? Yeah. You know, those are, those seem fairly simple questions that should have really serious answers. Yeah. I mean, you think people would have those questions in their mind now before moving into Absolutely. a new development? Yeah. Caveat emptor. Yeah. Buyer beware. Yeah. Um, and <laughs> it's not just the state or the county that needs to be thinking about it. It's also the people who really want to live in those places. I mean, I say this, but I like living near fire hydrants. I think they're a really good idea. Um, and so that's sort of my response. Yeah. <laughs> so live near a fire hydrant. So let's move on to water. Um, sort of the flip side of fire, perhaps. Um so, but it is another major problem, as you've mentioned, for California as well as the West. And you, you write an essay called Upper Reaches. And in this essay, you write about the Weeks Act of 1911. And I note that it had bipartisan support, which existed in those days. So, would you tell us about its long ranging beneficial consequences and what lessons they might hold for us today? Sure. Yeah, it's a really interesting piece of legislation that almost no one knows anything about. And that included me. Um, I got asked to give a talk about the Weeks Act. And I knew, you know, sort of like it existed. And I knew what some of its central purposes seemed to be. Um, But I was really intrigued as I dug into it to recognize, as you say, that here was a piece of legislation that was bipartisan. and And I wrote the essay 
a couple of years after its centennial and then rewrote it for the book. And so I'd been watching, uh, you know, the slow polarization and actually fairly quick pol- polarization of American politics. And I've been, wait, 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 wait. Uh, there was a different world once. And they thought about environmental questions in a more collective way in the House of Representatives and the Senate, and also in state legislatures, you know, because these things are also taking place there. Um, but, but the Weeks Act is unusual in this respect, certainly in 1911, and most especially in some respects today. What it did was to give the federal government the right to purchase from willing sellers. So this is not eminent domain from willing sellers um, land in upper reaches in the upper extremes of watersheds to protect the water and its flow, to protect the forests, which protected the water and thus to protect downstream communities in part from flooding. And that was part of the the sort of constellation of issues that energized grassroots organizations, um, um, city and county and state organizations, and ultimately a national movement um, to push this bill um, through through the House, the U.S. House and Senate. It took 11 years thereabouts. Um, But it's amazing to sort of look back at that and go, okay, it was 11 years and you had to work your way through constitutional issues. Can can the U.S. government actually purchase land? That was number one. Um, and, And two, can you actually craft legislation that looks not at a site specific solely, but thinks about watersheds from mountaintops through valleys to the point of, of, of its delta and convergence with whatever the body of water it converged with, whether in this case, because it was largely used in the east, the Atlantic Ocean, or the Gulf of Mexico. That is such um, a perceptive way to think about the world. And it was, as I was writing about in this particular essay, but other longer form essays that I've written about the Weeks Act, that was the part that really stuck out to me, that they had a bigger imagination than I suspect in some cases we do. And so that's part of what, what, what drove this, as well as the sort of political combination. Because in the end, it seems to me, what I kind of concluded in the essay on Natural Consequences is that, that you can't achieve this kind of environmental end if you only rely on federal support any more than you can achieve it without grassroots level support, local support of one form or another, that that um, a way to frame this is top down, bottom up and middle out. You need all three elements of an American political dynamic, which is the federal, the state and the local whether it's governmental or you're thinking in nonprofit terms, all of these have to be in conversation with one another about, let's call it the Weeks Act, but it could be clean air and clean water legislation that emerged in the 1960s, which also had the same dynamic. You had local people recognize fully that the water they were drinking was bad, 
but you can't get a city necessarily to clarify its water sources because those water sources can be far away. And so you could be on the Ohio River. Um, you could be on Lake Michigan. And so all of a sudden, other entities come into play. And it seems to me that that's true for the civil rights movement, for, for the women's movement and others, which is you start small, absolutely, because that's where people are located. But to but to shift the legislative dynamic, you've got to work your way up through these various levels of legislation and power um, to make the change that you wish. Um, and so for me, the Weeks Act is an example of a successful version of this process. Um, and although it took place in the East, it turns out money was spent that was designed to be for the East, also in the West. Um, and that was sort of the hook for me as a way to pull this East, what seems like an Eastern story, but which to my mind is really a national one. And do you think, could that kind of far thinking brought more a sort of holistic perspective on the environment? Could, could legislation take place um, with that sort of vision and motivation today? You know, I think it can. Uh, maybe not. Maybe not in the next year or so until you know the Republicans figure out who their Speaker of the House is going to be. Um, but but you know, so so one of the things that you try to do is to figure out what the local hook is, whether and you know this has been true in in. Um, various parts of California where you look at some of the desert lands um, conservation issues that have emerged or Pinnacles National Park that emerged out of a bipartisan effort. And yeah, you compromise. Absolutely. And, and in many ways that weakens the legislation. And so, you know, whether it's a question of expanding wilderness or whatever it may be, but what's the goal? If the goal is to get the regulation in place, if the goal is to turn um, and, and build on wilderness and you can get 20,000 acres of wilderness and not the 100,000 that you think you need, you go for the 20. When the window is open, you go for it and you work with those who do it so that you build a base and you can then expand this later. Uh, in that respect, it's a pretty pragmatic approach to bipartisan legislation. Um, because to go back to one of your early questions, one of the things that makes California special is that people across the aisle in fact, appreciate the beauty of the state, however you define that, you know, whether it's in the Central Valley or the mountains or coastal or, or lowland coastal mountain reaches. There's an awful lot of protected land in this state, in part because it appealed and appeals to Republicans and Democrats, independents or whatever label one puts on oneself. And it doesn't mean it don't, they don't come without fights. Like, that's what politics is. You have to get in there and push your agenda and recognize the point at which that agenda um, works for you, but not for someone else. And so you start to do these kinds of compromise things. Um, and and I'm not opposed to compromise because I think it if you only see compromises as the death of whatever it is you're going after, you're missing the point. Mm -hmm. Go get the thing you're after. Well, however reduced it is, and then the next week turn around and demand the other thing. Um, and you just have to keep pushing and pushing and pushing. Yeah. Yeah. It's tireless work. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. 
absolutely tireless. Yeah. So all of these essays involve human interaction with the environment, whether you're walking through them or whatever. You know, occasionally it, it comes across whimsically too. So a couple of essays that struck me that this way were Flower Power, um, and that's about the super bloom of spring flowers in Anza Borrego Desert State Park in Southern California. And also an essay called Unsanctified, which focuses on a giant piece of earth-moving art in the Basin and Range National Monument in Nevada. So I wonder if you'd tell us about one or both of these and the cautionary tale that lies therein. Oh, yeah, that's great. So for those who have never seen a super bloom, and I suspect that's maybe a lot of listeners, um, it's a moment when desert flowers, whether in Death Valley National Park, Joshua Tree National Park, or in this particular case, Anza Borrego Desert State Park, which is the second largest state park in the United States, second to the Adirondacks. Um, if you get good w- wet weather right around now, which I hope they are getting, You have the capacity, it's not predicted, but you have the capacity to have these incredible profusions of desert wildflowers (laughs) that people race out to trample. Um, So, I mean, to see, but, you know, in the process of seeing, you, 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 you tend to step on the thing that you're interested in. Um, and there's a metaphor in there somewhere lurking to get out. Um, but but I was my wife and I went down to Anza Borrego during the super bloom, uh, the, the most recent one, four or five years ago. And, you know, we got up very early in the morning, drove down there, which is only about a two hour drive from where we are. Come up and over the lip of uh, the San Jacinto Mountains, I believe they are, um, and start driving down and went, oh, God. We hadn't thought about the crowds. I mean, I knew the crowds were there because every newspaper was talking about it, but I just didn't, you know, we got up early. We thought we'd beat people. Not a chance. The place was a madhouse. So here you have a natural event, water striking desert, giving nourishment to desert plants that bloom infrequently. Um, And so... We like infrequent events because it's they're special, um, and to see the desert blooming is its own magic, right? One's own garden you can you can manage to the point where of course it's always blooming. You can't do that in the desert; it's got to depend on weather and 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 wet. Um, and so you know, so there you we drove into this town that was absolutely chaotic um, and, and realized that we were part of the chaos. I mean, the other thing about many of these essays and, and, you know, you can't escape your own implication um, in the very things that you might decry. Um, and so the essay is a part sort of looking back at my wife and I going, uh-huh, you were part of this very problem. Um, but the, but the other thing that I was really interested in is, 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 sort of how we build an ethic around um, both Kuyam, the sort of guest ethic on the one hand, um, but also an ethic about how you treat the desert, how you treat the mountain, um, and whether it's mountain ethics or desert ethics or in the language that most of the federal uh, land management agencies, the U.S. Forest Service, uh, National Park System, Fish and Wildlife, or the Bureau of Land Management utilize, which is um, and I'm just blanking on it. Um, oh man, that's embarrassing. Um, the way in which they, they sort of talk about, um, it's not the take only pictures, leave only footprints. Yeah. Well, there's that, right. That it's, it's, um, 
Um, that part, which came out of the 1960s, um, oh God, I'm so embarrassed. Leave no trace. Apologies, dear listener. Um, it, it was right at the tip of my tongue. I knew leave and place and I couldn't come up with the next word. Leave no trace. So you can't leave no trace. That's impossible. Um, and so part of what we're doing is creating an expectation of behavioral change that I perfectly approve, appreciate, understand, even approve. While I'm going, <laughs> but if you go to a super bloom, it's really hard not to leave a trace, whether it is the plume of effluence that coming out of our tailpipes as we drive to these places, or the very fact of getting out of the car and stepping on the ground. Um, and part of it is also that you know you don't leave, you know you leave trace in an urban environment um, and, and can't not. So why are these two places different? One, you don't leave trace. The other, you trash. So the way that essay closes is to sort of turn around and ask those of us who live in largely urbanized landscapes, what if we treated our open spaces with the same joy and hesitation effectively that we try to treat um, a desert, a mountaintop, um, a preserve, um, an open space that is larger than an urban park might imagine being. And I think that's, that's a reminder that we live everywhere to be sure, but that we shouldn't have one ethic for one place and one ethic for another. And the other ethic of, of trash is not actually an ethic. It's just really bad behavior. So I'm really interested in sort of the, the urban wild, um, urban nature, uh, in part because that's where I live. Um, and, and, and so write a lot about in essays about the town in which I live, Claremont, California, as a way to remind myself that, you know what, there are these open landscapes that are right here. Every town has them or they should. And those places that don't should have everything that the other places have been benefited by um, as a way to help us understand that this earth, this is what we got. And we can't just wall off some places and say, that's great. And it's wild. And other places where we say, nah, who cares? Like, let it go. We can't let anything go. We have to preserve and protect those places that are as critical to our life as citizens, literally those who live in cities, um, as you might be if you lived out in Joshua Tree or up adjacent to Death Valley and thought because of that you were somehow virtuous. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, and I, I think in L.A., well, I'm, I'm using L.A. as an example, but you could say other places in California, but L.A. being maybe, you know, the urban most, in, in a way, part of yeah, California. Absolutely. You, you can see the mountains as you're driving along the freeways. Um, you know, you could drive to a place and go skiing, wouldn't be too far away. You could drive to the ocean, it wouldn't be too far away. So I think there you do have more of a sense, even when you're in an urban environment. You know, you could be in an urban environment and coyotes could come out of the canyon. Oh, Yes. Um, yeah, they've been in our backyard. Yes. Yeah. So no, and I think that's that was the thing that blew me away in 1972 as I 
rolled into Los Angeles. I'd been there before, but hadn't really been paying attention. Uh, and the backstory is I, I was driving a 1956 Volkswagen uh, that didn't quite make it. It died in, in Bridgeport, California, which is deep on the Eastern Sierra, hitchhiked with an 18 wheeler. This is how I get to college um, and come or come wheeling around the Cajon Pass into LA. And I went, oh my God, it was a place that I'd flown over, but never had really spent any time in. And there were 10,000, 11,000 foot mountains. And I could also go to coastal beaches within two hours in the same ways that I could get to those mountains within two hours. And in fact, the college where I teach, Pomona College, has a surf and sun, uh, uh, snow and surf day where students go snowboarding in the morning and then go surfing in the afternoon. Um, and, you know, it's one of the sort of cool little things that, that sort of defines California, uh, that you can do all of these things within a very short moment and span of places. Um, and if you live as carefully as one can, it's, it's, it's a good way to, it's a good place to be. And you've just increased enrollment at Pomona College. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. You know, that may not be the best reason why you want to come here, but, you know, that's not a bad reason. But it's not a bad one. Yeah. So, um, Char, we've taken up a lot of your time, but I, I want to ask you a couple of questions sure. before we end. Which, First of all, just, just a little bitty question. What, what do you see as the future for California? No, great. Well, I, I, you know, so I mentioned early on that I think from an historian's point of view, the past is never over. It is sticky. It's as close as, as can be. Um, and, you know, the past is complicated and conflicted. And I expect that to that to continue well into the, into the future. Um, but one of the ways to think about that past as, as we look at it, and, and again, because our conversation is about environmental stuff and, and the questions that natural consequences seems to raise, um, is what about that past can we take strength from? Draw hope, but maybe not optimism, and I think they're very different things. Um, Barbara Kingsolver calls hope essentially the armor that you put on every day as you w work your way into the world trying to make it better. Uh, optimism is, uh, you know, not that. Um, it's, it's presuming things will change. It's not actually the active agency. And that's where I would go, that, that I think what these essays are looking at, um, whether it's the Weeks Act or other both legislative and organized um, actions, is that people have taken action stepped into the civic arena to try to change its ethos, to try to change its impact, to try to increase justice, to make places more habitable, um, to reduce the burdens on those who are have been racially minoritized. Um, all of this stuff falls within the larger concept of the environment because that's where we live, however you define that. Um, and California has been relatively good at, at encouraging, supporting, um, providing a kind of historical foundation where you can actually be the active agent in the world. Um, it's not always successful, but no place is. Um, but I love, I love that there is a future that could be better than it is now and that people who made that past can make that future. I mean, I think that's 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 what I would love readers to come away with uh, of natural consequences is that we have agency. We just have to use it. Yeah. 
Wow. Well, that is very encouraging to hear because so often that's not the message that we hear. You know, it's more on the pessimistic side. So Yeah, yeah. And I'm really good at that, by the way. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's a local columnist who called me the master of disaster. And I really like the the sort of lilt of that, but 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 that actually isn't what I'm doing. I'm yeah. trying to suggest that there are ways to think our way through those processes, but we have to think about them, not just do you know, not just act. We've got to think about what we're doing. Yeah. Wow. Well, and so if, if I could ask you just one more question and it sure. may differ a little bit, but it's just what are you working on next? Well, I've got a couple of book projects, one of which is called Burn Scars, that looks at the long history of fire suppression in California and the larger West that isn't just framed around what the Forest Service did or didn't do with fire and still doesn't do in some cases, uh, but takes the story back to the Spanish invaders um, who recognized that the indigenous people from San Diego north through the Bay Area used fire to manage the landscape. Well, the Spanish weren't interested in fire being used by indigenous people to manage the landscape. They wanted to manage the indigenous people. So what do you do? You suppress fire so that you force them to work for you, to coerce them into missions and the like. Um, The Forest Service picked up on that very broad way of thinking about fire and those who use it. In fact, in their early 20th century attempts to suppress fire, they tried to suppress those who used it, whether it was indigenous or ranchers or others who recognized that using fire produced grasslands and forage for their animals. They called them Paiute forestry. They called them Paiutes. So, which is probably the worst thing you could have said to a white colonial settler, that they're actually Indians. So there's this racism that runs through this fire suppression language. um, And I'm doing a compilation. I want people to read the original documents where this stuff is talked about and laid out um, as a way to, and I think about this as as a teaching tool. Um, if nothing else. But it's a it's an interesting project. It's more complicated than I thought going into it. It's a hell of a lot more complicated than I thought going into it. Um, but I hope it'll be done in the next year or so. And then I've got another um, story about a bio- botanist uh, in Texas for only a short period of his career, 10 years, but who basically transformed the way we understand Texas ecologically. Um, and I'm really interested in people like that because I just don't know where their brains come from. Um, and so I'm writing a short biography of him, which is a very different kind of book. But but I'm, I'm, I'm really intrigued by people who ask questions that other people didn't ask at a time when people weren't asking them um, and try to figure out what they were thinking. Yeah. So how long is a short biography? That's a really good question. Ask me when it's done. I know long uh, biographies can be very long, you know. Yeah, they can be. And I'm not Witness Robert in... Caro and Lyndon B. Johnson. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I, you know, I love that book, The Power, the Power, um, whatever that was, Power Broker. Um, but I couldn't write a book that long. I've written about Gifford Pinchot, who was the first chief of the U.S. Forest Service. Um, and, you know, he's got an extraordinary archive, and I tapped maybe. 10% of it, if I'm lucky. Um, but I'm 
not interested in writing a 500 page book. And this guy didn't leave a lot of records outside of his own public writing. So that makes it shorter. Um, but you know, it, it, it's about a state that I also loved because I lived there for 26 years. And, um, he taught me things about the state that I didn't know just by reading his reports written in 1904, 1905. Um, and so, you know, I want to both celebrate that and also interrogate that. So, you know, maybe 200 pages. Yeah. Well, it's fascinating, this combination of history and um, environmentalism. Yeah. Um, yeah. Because yeah, would, we usually hear about, you know, environmentalism in the moment as you know, uh, activism and disaster, impending disaster. But it's, you know, it's something that's impending and in, in the moment. Um, and so I, I think... Generally speaking, when people think about um, environmental catastrophes, problems, issues, they don't tend to think of it with a historical perspective. Yeah, and I think that's too bad. And that's, I mean, I would say that those of us who are environmental historians have been wrestling with this question for a very long time, since the 1980s, really, when the subdiscipline started to emerge, that you could start to think about environmental issues, not solely as an activist, though many, many of us are, but also with the sort of sense that these issues that, you, that we're looking at um, have a past, so as you asked about the Weeks Act, it turns out it's it's a gift that is still giving, even though that funding legislation ran out in the 1970s. Um, but you've got to understand that you've got to go back and start looking at how these things came together and built out of coalitions that you would not have thought about if you did not think that historically you needed to assess what that act was, as well as place it in time. Um, as well as to go, I can go up into the Angeles National Forest and others and find the sites that were purchased with that money. And it doesn't have a sign there. There's no way right. to know it. <laughs> but the fact that it's there is really intriguing to me. So yeah, the past matters a great deal. Um, and environmental activists um, who do this frontline work um, are often pretty savvy about that past although that's not the pressing issue that defines the way in which they um, energize and make urgent uh, the need for us to respond. Yeah. Well, um, I'm looking forward to reading that short biography when it comes out. Well, thank you. I look forward to writing it. <laughs> Very good. Well, I want to remind everyone the book is Natural Consequences, and I should add the subtitle, it's Natural Consequences, Intimate Essays for a Planet in Peril. So we do have a call to activism there. And it is by Char Miller, uh, and it is out now. Really interesting reading. Um, and as Char says, it's, it's not hard to get through because you've got your short essays, but it's um, really, really thought-provoking. Thank and, you. Yeah. And Char, thank you so much for speaking with us today. It's my great pleasure, Rachel. Thank you so much for having me on.